Good morning. I'm Stephanie Rudman, and I'm a member here at Redemption Church. And today's reading is Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper, and the Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. And uh, as Danny said, my name is Greg Allis. I'm one of the members here, and it's a great privilege for me to uh, bring the message this morning. Join me in a word of prayer as uh, we get started. Father, we thank you for your word, and we um, ask now at this time that we can hear from you, Lord. Um, we want to know what you're like. We want to know how to relate to you. We want to know how to live with you and for you. And so we just ask for your blessing upon this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a very well-known poem called Invictus. Maybe you've heard of it or part of it before. It's been the theme of a few movies and some books. And it goes something like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Written in 1875 by William Ernest Henley, this well-known poem expresses a proud and defiant self-confidence. It has been quoted by many people, including, among others, Winston Churchill during World War II, Nelson Mandela during his time in prison in South Africa, President Barack Obama at Mandela's funeral, and interestingly enough, by the Oklahoma City bomber, bomber Timothy McVeigh as his final words before his execution. The poem expresses an attitude toward life, a posture of the soul, an inspiration, a spirit. Especially when facing the difficulties of this life and the terrors of the next. This attitude can best be summarized as a proud self-confidence, a self-reliance. Notice in stanza one that the author identifies himself of the as a child of the night enshrouded in darkness and blackness. 
If there are any gods which he doubts, the only thing he is thankful for is himself and his unconquerable soul. In the second verse, the author describes this life as a beating of chance and circumstance, which leaves him bloody but unhumbled. In the third stanza, he looks beyond this life to the horror of the afterlife, but even that leaves him unafraid. And finally, even though he is aware of the narrow gate and of the coming judgment, he will not heed any instructions, but only trust in himself to determine his fate. He neither needs nor wants help from any outside source besides himself. He trusts in himself. He worships himself. Now, in sharp contrast, Psalm 121 is another poem that was written several thousand years ago that expresses a very different attitude toward life. It, too, expresses a very confident approach to life. However, this, this confidence is not in ourself. It is in the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 121 is a poetic declaration of confident trust in God. And it helps us answer some big questions. How can I make it through this life? Where do I find help when I'm in need? Where do I find strength when I'm weak? Where do I find protection when I'm vulnerable? Where do I find wise counsel when I'm confused? Who or what am I to trust? Psalm 121 leans into these questions with a very clear encouragement to trust in God. Now this song is divided into two parts. Verses 1 and 2 comprise part 1, where the individual declares his personal confession of faith in Yahweh, the God who entered into a special covenant with the people of Israel. And then part 2, in verses 3 through 8, um, change from the first to the second person, from I and my to you and your. And this is the community affirmation of the individual's personal confession of faith. As Stephanie read, this psalm is one of 15 psalms of ascents. You might see that title in your Bible. And these were songs that were sung at all three of the annual Jewish festivals. You may know Jewish history. The men were required to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, three times a year. And every time they went, these 15 psalms of ascent were sung. So these were kind of like national anthems, kind of like the Star-Spangled Banner for us. And they were most likely memorized and sung from a very early age for Hebrew children. This song may have opened with a solo in part one of the individual confession of faith. And they, then there may have been a priestly choir maybe that responded with the community affirmation of faith. Some think this song may have been the closing song of benediction for the festivals as the pilgrims would head back home, back into the challenges and opportunities of life after having enjoyed the time of fellowship and worship at the temple. So let's look more closely at part one, a personal confession of faith in verses one to two, a personal confession of faith. 
Now, faith in God is something that begins very personal. We all have personal, a personal belief system or a worldview that shapes how we think and how we act. We may not have verbalized it. We may not even consciously understand it in a comprehensive way. Nevertheless, we all have a faith system. It's not something that we inherit from our parents, and it's not something that we absorb into our mind by being part of a church. It's something that is discovered as we examine ourselves, our heart, our mind. And it's what we are convinced is truly true, is really real. We all have faith in someone or something. William Ernest Henley had faith in himself. The psalmist has faith in God. Faith in God comes from hearing the truth about God and then responding in personal trust. This personal confession has at least two defining characteristics in this psalm, a need for help and the helper. So the first thing this this confession of faith has is it confesses a need for help. Notice verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, the word hills here, I'm, in the ESV translation, I'm not crazy about that. I, the word can mean either mountains or hills. I like the word mountains better. I think it fits the context a little bit better. Either way, the psalmist is looking forward, and he's not seeing a smooth, easy, level path ahead. He's seeing some obstacles ahead. And so he knows that this journey ahead is going to be difficult. There's mountains to cross, and he knows that he will need help to make it through to the other side. Now, when I think of mountains, I think of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado where I grew up. If you've ever been to Colorado, you know the Rocky Mountains. They rise out of the eastern plains like this massive geographical marker, and they symbolize many things. They symbolize beautiful mountain vistas when you climb to the top, they, they, people think of fun, the fun of skiing and hiking and camping. But if I were to imagine trying to cross the Rocky Mountains on foot before there were roads or cars or civilization, this thought is both thrilling and terrifying at the same time, right? I know for myself I would need some help for that kind of adventure. It doesn't take us long to realize that life is filled with opportunities, difficulties, and dangers. These are the mountains in life. They may be physical, spiritual, relational, familial, professional, financial, political. These are the kinds of mountains that we all have to face. There is the possibility of achievement and success. There's also the possibility of failure and disappointment. When we realize that this life is just a prelude to the next life, we see another mountain in the distance, right? Another opportunity for eternal reward or eternal loss. How can we safely and successfully navigate the challenges and opportunities of life? That's really what I think this psalm is about. As we lift up our eyes to these mountains, is there anyone to help us make it safely through? Now, Psalm 121 says there is. 
And that leads us to the second point here of the personal confession of faith, the helper. In verse 2, the helper. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The helper is identified in two ways here, as Yahweh and the maker of heaven and earth. Now, Yahweh is often translated as Lord. If you, if you ever notice in your Bible, sometimes the word Lord is all capital letters. That's the word Yahweh. Now, some Bibles will, will actually put the word Yahweh in there to distinguish when it's Yahweh and when it's just the word for Lord. And I think there's reason to do that because Yahweh is a very important and significant designation of God. Yahweh is the name that God revealed of himself to Moses in the burning bush. If you, if you remember the story, God appeared to Moses in the desert in this burning bush, and he said, Moses, I want to deliver my people out of Egypt, and I want you to go and deliver them. I want you to be my, my messenger. And Moses says, well, when they ask me who sent you, what am I supposed to tell them? And God says, I am that I am. That's the name Yahweh. And God goes on to say in, in Exodus 3.15, he says, This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. God wants to be identified as Yahweh. So when the psalmist here in Psalm 121 says that his help is in Yahweh, he's saying that the very same God who came to help the Israelites, deliver them from Egypt, lead them through the wilderness to the promised land, it's that same God who is going to help me. However, God is not just the God of the Jewish people. He's much more than that. He is also the one who made heaven and earth. And this, too, is a distinguishing identification of Yahweh, especially in a world of many gods. And he not only made all things, but he made the very mountains that are before us, that we have to cross. So what better source of help could there be? And this brings us to the second part of this psalm where we discover what kind of helper Yahweh is as this second voice comes in and responds to the personal confession of faith with part two, the community affirmation of faith in Yahweh as the keeper. The community affirmation of faith in Yahweh, the keeper, verses three through eight. Now, as I said, the voice now changes in this psalm from the first person to the second, and this suggests that there is some confirmation of the individual confession of faith. So as I said, faith begins as something very personal, but it continues and grows as something communal. When we realize that the faith that I have, I'm not the only one that has it. Many, many other people in history past and even today share this faith in Yahweh. These are the truths about God that the people of Israel have come to know about him throughout the centuries of being in covenant with him. And so the primary descriptor of Yahweh in verses 3 through 8 is this word, keeper. This appears six times in these six verses. And the word suggests protection. Sometimes it's even translated guardian. It reminds us of a shepherd who keeps or protects or guards his flock. Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so what we see here in these verses is there's, there's a description of God as our keeper. He's always alert. He's always present. He's all-powerful. 
and he's forever committed. Let's look at each one of these. First of all, he's always alert in verses 3 to 4. Always alert. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, another way of translating verse 3 when it says, He will not allow your foot to slip or to be moved is that He will not allow your foot to slip. Now, this is important when you're climbing mountains, right? Mountain climbers know that, um, that if they slip their foot, it could lead to disaster, right? Every year we hear of mountain climbers who slip and fall to serious injury or sometimes even death. And this is especially true when the journey has been long and we are getting tired or discouraged. We can become more vulnerable to harmful missteps. As our keeper, Yahweh never becomes tired and never needs to sleep. He doesn't allow our feet to slip. As we look to him for help, he will keep us from the harmful and deadly missteps of life. And that leads us to the second thing about Yahweh. Not only is he always alert, but he's always present in verses 5 to 6. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. A picture that comes to mind, my mind when I read these verses is when Yahweh led the Israelites through the wilderness after he delivered them from Egypt. The Bible tells us that he was a cloud by day and a fire by night. And you can imagine going through the Sinai Desert that the heat could be oppressive, right? Even dangerous. And so God was, was sheltering, shading his people as they traveled through the wilderness as a cloud. But just as terrifying as the heat of the day can be the terrors of the night. Uh, our family has enjoyed two seasons of a, of a series called Alone. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's this reality show where people compete to see who can survive the longest alone in the wilderness. It's really interesting. But the scariest part for many people, in which many contestants tap out, is, is the nighttime, when the animals of prey come out to hunt in the darkness. You know, sounds and movements and eyes flickering in the fi firelight can drive these contestants crazy. You know? um, there may not even be a real threat out there, but your mind can play tricks on you in the darkness. Often in life, there are real fears, but sometimes we have irrational fears. Sometimes we could be more afraid of the irrational fears than the real fears. Those who trust in Yahweh find that he is very close to us, a shade right by our side, a fire by night, always present to keep us through the dangers of the day and the dangers of the night, whether real or imagined, rational or irrational. And that leads us to the third and I think maybe most important part, that he is all-powerful. Yahweh is all-powerful. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now, the word life here can also be translated soul, and I think that's probably the best translation here because it's talking about something more than just our physical life. When we think of evil, we know that there are dangers to our soul that go beyond just our physical life, right? That's why Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. We know that the Bible teaches us that there is an enemy of our soul called the evil one, whose sole purpose is to deceive us into getting us to sin to the destruction of our soul. We know that this evil is not just out there, it's also in us, right? In our flesh, in what the Bible calls our sinful nature, where there is a desire within us to indulge in the forbidden fruits of sin. And not only that, we live in a world that constantly tempts us and encourages us to succumb to the pleasures of sin and the desires of sin. These three powerful forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil, form a destructive triumvirate that's way too powerful for us to defeat by ourselves. The only possible way for us to survive is through the help of Yahweh, our all-powerful keeper, who will keep us from all evil. He will keep our soul. That leads us to the fourth and final characteristic of Yahweh described here in verse 8, that he's forever committed to us. He's forever committed to us. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, life takes us on many journeys, doesn't it? Many times we may go out and come back in. There are many different stages and seasons of life, many different mountains to climb with different challenges and opportunities. The final mountain to climb in this life will be death itself. And then we will face the life to come. How will we survive and thrive through all the comings and goings of life? Those who trust in Yahweh as their helper will find that he is committed to keep them always and forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. This is the affirmation of the people of God to the individual confession of faith. The truth about Yahweh, he is always alert, always present, all-powerful, and forever committed. This is the the God that many have experienced throughout the centuries and that Psalm 121 bears witness to. And this leads us to our big idea this morning. How can we make it through life? We can make it through this life by humbly trusting in Yahweh to be our helper. That's the simple message of the psalm this morning. We can make it through this life by humbly trusting in Yahweh to be our helper. And so we want to look at a couple of application points from this psalm this morning. So what? What difference does this make in our life, right? And maybe the first question we might ask is, how can I know that Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people, will help me like this psalm says? This is a Jewish song for Jewish people. Verse 4 even says that he is the one who keeps Israel. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not Jewish. So does this even apply to me? Now, this is a good question to ask when you're reading the Bible because you always want to understand the original context and, and who the original writing was written to. But in this case, we can know that this applies to us if we know Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus. In fact, Jesus' Jewish name is Yeshua, which is a combination of a shortened form of, a form of Yahweh, Yah, and Shua, which means saves. Yahshua, which means 
Yahweh saves. But even more than just his name, Jesus Jesus has told us that those who come to him, he makes a new covenant with. This is what we celebrate in communion, right? The, The cup represents the new covenant in his blood, which is given for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament to his people, especially of the promises in Psalm 121. I mean, what better way, what greater way has God kept his people from evil than in sending Jesus Christ to be, to be crucified, dead, buried, resurrected for our sins. It's his propitiatory, substitutionary death on the cross that actually saves us from all evil. Now, <laughs> this is such wonderful news. Wouldn't everyone want to believe in Jesus? Wouldn't everyone want to take Jesus as their helper? Sadly, no. Not everyone wants God's help, as we know. Not everyone is willing to humble themselves to receive his help. And that brings us to our second take-home truth today. God only helps the weak and helpless. God only helps the weak and helpless. You may have heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves. I remember hearing this when I grew up. But that is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And the cry for help in in verse 1 of this psalm is very, very important. It's crucial. God created us as dependent beings. We are designed to rely on him, to worship him. God loves to be gracious and help us, but since the fall, we have craved independence. And we want to to be like God ourselves, self-sufficient, self-fulfilling, self-determining, wise in our own eyes. We want to be the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. We want to write our own story without any help from anyone, especially God. This is the spirit of our age. This is the call of the world, and this is the temptation within. And this is what distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions. Because every other religion, if you study it and you come to understand it, it's based on yourself being good, doing enough good works to save yourself. This is the problem that Jesus identified with the Pharisees when he said that the Pharisees were those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And this self-righteousness must be rejected if we are going to receive God's free gift of help in Jesus Christ. This is what C.S. Lewis identified as the unique characteristic of Christianity, and that was grace. That salvation is not something that we earn or something that we do or something that we perform. It's something that's given to us as a gift by God. And to receive this gift, we must be utterly convinced of our helplessness. See, the truth is we're not drowning in the ocean and we, we need Jesus to throw us a life raft or give us a hand so we can pull ourselves out. The truth is is that we're dead at the bottom of the sea. We need Jesus to go down and fish us out and bring us out and resuscitate us to make us alive. This is our true state. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive. Now, this kind of helplessness is not the common or popular view of humanity today, especially in America, right? We're a wealthy nation. We're maybe the most powerful nation on earth. We don't like to think of ourselves as weak and helpless. 
And I think that confidence in humanity and our potential is at an all-time high, especially, if, especially for us as Americans. One of, way, one of the ways this manifests itself is in our confidence in science and technology. We could name many things, right? Many people put their confidence in many, many things. But this morning, I'm just going to use the example of science and technology. I was listening to a, um, a podcast recently, and it was a scientist who was absolutely convinced that within his lifetime, we were going to discover the secret to immortality. You know? And, um, you know, when we talk about confidence in science and technology, we're really talking about confidence in ourselves, right? Because what is science? Science is our ability as humans to, to observe and manipulate the material world. And so when we're trusting in science, we're trusting in ourselves to do that. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the term humanism, but it's a, it's a term that describes, I think, the major belief system in our world today, the competing worldview, the competing belief system to Christianity. And there's uh, some documents called the Humanist Manifesto. They've been developed over the last hundred years. Many, many prominent, well-known, powerful people sign on saying that they believe and they subscribe to the Humanist Manifesto. <clears throat> and I think it describes what many people believe today. Here's a quote from the Humanist Manifesto too. It says this, dramatic scientific and technological changes have virtually conquered the planet. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with the unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. Did you catch that? Science and technology is going to deliver us an abundant and meaningful life. And by the way, this is what Jesus promised as well. He said, I came that, that they might have life and life more abundantly. So who's it going to be? Science and technology or Jesus, right? The manifesto goes on to say, traditional faiths encourage dependence rather than independence. And that's true. That's what we're talking about today. The Bible does encourage dependence rather than independence. But this goes on to say, but we can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. Humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, Many people are inspired by this kind of talk, but it just leaves me discouraged and hopeless. If, I, if that was what I was believing, I would be utterly hopeless. The ideas of us as human beings saving ourselves, to me, is like a three-year-old walking up with his father to the Rocky Mountains and then saying, okay, Dad, leave me alone now. I'm going to go cross the Rockies by myself. And we know if, even if there's a million three-year-olds, they're not going to make it across the Rocky Mountains, Right? And this is what I believe it's like for we human beings to think that we can provide a, a, an abundant and meaningful lives by ourselves for ourselves. And this really highlights the crucial issue of how we see ourselves. What is our self-identity? Are we the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul? Or are we little children in need of our Father? 
this is crucial, how you answer this question has a huge impact on your life. And this is why Jesus said things like this, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 4. Jesus also said that the Father hid the truths of the kingdom of God to the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And a verse that's repeated over and over in the Bible is that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not anti-science, and I'm not, not a science denier. Right? I, I like heated seats. I like cars. <laughs> I like my iPhone and my Bluetooth. I use them every day. However, I do not look to science to achieve an abundant and meaningful life. This is not something that I believe science can ever do. Science cannot keep me from evil. And science cannot forgive me of my sins and help me to stop sinning. Science cannot help me love my neighbor. And science cannot raise me from the dead. The greatest needs that we as human beings have, science cannot address. In fact, science often exposes the real needs that we have. I mean, nuclear energy is a great benefit to the human race. And yet, the human heart, the evil within our human heart, creates the reality and need for nuclear bombs, of which we all fear. Cell phones can be a tool for many good and useful things. But they also expose and feed the evil lust within the human heart. We could go on and on about science and technology in this regard. But science is a poor substitute for Yahweh. And it is an idol that will ultimately fail those who trust in it. I would rather trust in the one who made the universe than in little humans who can only manipulate the universe in minor ways. And that leads us to the third and final point this morning. When we realize that Yahweh is our helper, we can get lost in awe and wonder. I don't know about you, but when I think about God, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, being my helper, my keeper, it's a bit overwhelming. Yahweh, the one who flooded the whole world in judgment in the days of Noah and confused all the languages of the earth at the Tower of Babel, he will keep my feet from slipping? Yahweh, the one who sent the plagues on the most powerful nation of the day and led his people through the wilderness to the promised land, he will be my shade on my right hand? Yahweh, the one who came into the world and resisted the temptations of the devil in the wilderness and was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected from the dead at the turning of the tide in world history against the forces of darkness and light and the battle against of darkness and light, he will keep me from all evil? Yahweh, the one who will come again in glory, triumph, judgment, and salvation, he will keep my going out and my coming in? He will do all of this for such a pitiful, sinful wretch like me? It's a bit overwhelming. It's a bit too much to take in when you really stop and think about it. How great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. 
And so my encouragement to us this this morning from this passage from Psalm 121 is let's reject the proud self-confidence of the world around us and instead have a humble God confidence and let Jesus be the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Let's join, let's uh, pray together as we close this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word, these truths from Psalm 121. And Father, I do pray that you will convict each one of us of the truth about who we are, who we really are, what we are really like, what our relationship to you is like. Deliver us, Lord, from proud, exalted thoughts that set us in opposition to you, that that keep us from experiencing and knowing your help, your presence. And Lord, we do thank you. We do praise you that you are willing to condescend, to come down and be with each one of us, to be our helper in our times of need. Lord, you are high and exalted. You are worthy of all praise. And we give you praise, honor, and glory this morning and acknowledge you as Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, and the one that we look to to be our helper. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.